And now we'll find out if we're really ready to surrender our thoughts and lives to whatever our king says. So let's hear what he says as we turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Those who, who are here often, we've been turning to the same text to begin each week. Deuteronomy chapter 5, begin with verse 4. And then if you can hold on to that and turn back to Jesus taking this same seventh command and uh, helping us to understand a, a few more of its implications. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we begin with verse 4. Let us stand because we're going to be remembering that what we are hearing is the word of God. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then we come to the seventh command in verse 18. You shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus takes that up in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we remember that those serious words, indeed, are the word of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when I used to be the pastor of a much smaller church, uh, I did a lot of weddings. And when we had weddings, I did the same thing at one part in every wedding. Everybody started listening for it. And actually, I think I've mentioned it here before in another message. But just before we came to the formal part of the wedding vows, I stopped and I looked at the couple and I said, um, what's the most expensive part of this wedding? And then I would ask, is it is it the ring? Uh, is it the reception that will follow? Uh, will it be the honeymoon? I always hoped it would be the minister's fee. You know, the same old joke, same old joke every time. And then I would try to get to the punchline. I'd say, here it is. The most expensive part of this wedding is the promises. These promises that we make to one another before people and before God. I thought about that again as we came to the seventh command. And particularly this part of the traditional wedding vows. I promise to keep myself only unto you. As long as we both shall live. Now, I know that's not as specific as we may talk about it, but you know what that's talking about. It is a promise of sexual faithfulness. As long as we both shall live, I will keep myself only to you as long as we both shall live. And I always look and they're both smiling there as they say it. And I think, do they know what they're promising? And do they know that in our world and in our society... There will be some battles. There will be some battles. Because the hard part is not making the promise. It is, of course, keeping the promise. And we get into this world in which we begin to wonder 
Was that promise a good one? And sometimes we begin wondering, is it possible to keep that promise? It's with that in mind that we come. And I think that promise that we make in our wedding vows really is the heart of the seventh command in which we make that promise that within this gift that God has created in the world of, of marriage and, and in which we are to have a lasting relationship and, and through which we are to have families that also last in a world which so much tries to divide us and make it so that we're alienated from one another, that God has said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I'll tell you, when I come to this topic, it's not a popular one. So I, I put in the worship folder and I put up here in front of you this well-known quote from C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity. I want you to look at it. Lewis wrote, chastity, which is what the seventh commandment is about. Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. But there's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. The least popular of all that God says is good of, of his values. And, and, and yet you came anyway. You must not have known what the topic was, right? First time comers. I'm glad you showed up. I hope it won't be the last week that you, that you come. Well, the question is, for me as a pastor here in 21st century Southern California, how do I preach about it? Do I preach such specifics that, that I blush and I'll have to put a bag over my head? I think most of you who come often know that I'm not much of an R-rated preacher. Have, have you noticed that? So I'm probably not going to do that. Am I going to swing over to the opposite extreme and speak so vaguely that when you walk out of here, you'll say, now... What on earth was he talking about in that sermon? Or will I do as I've, no, I've been a church going a long time. Will I do as I've heard it done so often, just ranting and raving about the evils of, of sexual practice out there in the world, pretending that none of us have any struggles with that at all? Well, I've been here long enough to, for you to know that I don't usually approach things that way either. I do know this, that though I want to go tastefully, but also hit it straight on. I want to see what God has to say. I do know this, that we need to preach a message. I think in this regard, in our world, we need to hear what God says. I'm looking for nods or, or, or amens. Because we know that what God says is good in this regard. Our society as a whole is saying it is not. I've pulled up the statistics. You probably know them as well as I. Uh, the most recent, 63% of all teenagers are sexually active outside of marriage. One in four teenage girls now has a sexually transmitted disease. Here we, here we are so close to Hollywood and Burbank and, and the media center of the world. And we know that the, the way of, of portraying the good life, the pleasurable life, is very different in media from what God's word says. I know that. Uh, perhaps most tellingly, uh, we, we read that Internet pornography and often the addictions that are developed there has become, in 2006, a 97 billion, billion, yes, dollar industry. And it is growing. And then I, I think we also know that in our society, we are simply bombarded by sexual stimulus. It is everywhere. 
It used to be people had to sneak off to these adult theaters hoping nobody would see them. Now, of course, it's right there in our homes uh, online. And even if you can put blocks online, now people can get at it right on their telephones. And so here I come. And I want to tell you that I know that simply because we go to church, I know that we are not immune. And I also know that when a, a pastor such as I am addresses this issue, it hits us all in very different ways. I have wrestled with this because I love the people of this church. I know it hits those of you who are single in one way, those who have, have, are facing struggles in your marriage or have had broken marriage relationships. It hits in another way. There are different kinds of struggles that, that people who come to a church like ours face whenever I address this. But I want you to know that I think I need to put in front of us that God's standard is good. Because I think the world is giving us this, this impression that if we reject biblical standards and, and just live the way that, that we feel like living, that life is a whole lot better. And so, so many are embracing a, a moral way of life that is contradictory to the Bible and finding it's not all that great. Cliff and Joyce Penner, a part of our church family, write so much about this. They lecture all over the world about it. And what they say is this, that what our world is giving is a portrayal of life, expectations, they say, that are false, unrealistic, and distorted. And often we engage in a pattern of life that sometimes becomes an addiction and is not fulfilling. Now, this is the first time in a long time I've talked about this topic with church folks. Uh, in my former life as a... Uh, university president, I would travel around lecturing at university settings, and, and often I found that I would be assigned this topic. I think they just wanted somebody from the outside to come in and then leave. And a few years ago, I was assigned Matthew 5, 27 and 28 when Jesus talks about it uh, at Princeton University uh, at a, 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 a Christian gathering there called the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship. So I talked about it, and afterwards we stayed around and talked about until about 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was right after Thomas Wolfe's uh, book, I Am Charlotte Simmons, came out. Uh, are you familiar with that book where Charlotte Simmons is a very, very bright young woman in high school, and she had wanted, tried to live a, a morally upright, as far as she could understand it, way of life, and she, but she couldn't find anybody else like her. Nobody else was like her. And she was accepted and given a scholarship into this very fine university. Uh, fabricated name but when she went there thinking she would find people like herself where they could grow together and learn together and become more of what she wanted to be she found instead the whole way of life was just the opposite no no real intellectual and certainly no moral pursuits and instead of her making a positive difference in growing her life was dragged down and the life was unfulfilling i will never forget at the end of the discussion one of the young students said to me most of us feel so connected to a person after a sexual encounter. But then the next day we find that that connection ends up letting us down. I'm, I'm going to be pointing out that that sense of connection is a part of the beauty of this gift. But that it was meant to be a part of a larger committed relationship. And, and we will see, if I, if I can communicate it clearly and you listen clearly... That what God has made is good because so long ago, as we've been looking at every week, uh, God, the finger of God etched on a tablet of stone. You shall not commit adultery. What I've, I find us doing with our fingers now is we try to erase that one. We try to erase, erase that one. 
So where God has said you shall not, our society is saying, well, of course you may. That's the way to live. And you and I have to decide who's right. And that's where I'm going to start. You see on the outline, I've called it, what's at stake in this sermon? Why is it that I didn't punt this one to Pastor Albert and I took it myself? And I'll tell you what's at stake. At stake is the goodness of God. What is at stake is whether God himself is trustworthy. So that when he says something is good, we can believe him. Now, um, I don't know if you're a Tolkien fan, as I am. But if you read Tolkien's trilogy, The the Lord of the Rings, I won't ask who hasn't read it. I'll I'll, I'll imagine that you haven't, though I'm imagining most of you have or have at least seen the movies. But but in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins becomes the the central character. He's a little hobbit, you know, kind of in the the, uh, enclosed, safe shire where he has lived. But he is given an enormous quest. Somehow he has chosen to carry the ring, the one ring of evil. And he is the one to whom it falls that he has to carry that ring from the shire, from the safety, to Mordor, into the fires, that it may be destroyed or civilization would not continue. Well, the quest is amazing, as as most of us who've read it know. And when you come near the end to the third of the books, The Return of the King, you find Frodo... And another hobbit, his, his companion, Sam, and then this other slimy character, a golem, who in his better moments is called a, a Smeagol, standing outside the entrance to Mordor. But they were surprised to find that from the last time that they had known of it, that a huge gate had been erected at the entrance. Moranon was its name. And that entrance had been fortified so that it seemed that there was no possibility of getting in. But Frodo said, but I must go. It is my quest. And and Smeagol says, no, master, no, master. They catch you. They catch you. And then he turns and says, there is another way. I know another way. And Sam strongly advises against it. You can't trust him, Mr. Frodo. You can't trust him. He's not good. And you see, they're they're faced with an issue here, aren't they? Is Smeagol good and trustworthy or not? And in a great deal of agony, Frodo turns to Smeagol and says, I will trust you once more. Now, I don't think I would have trusted Smeagol. I, I, I don't know about you. But today, as we come to this place, I want to face us with some basic questions. I want to ask you, folks who have come to the service, is God good? Is God to be trusted? For those of us who are believers, uh, we know that we had to make a decision about this a long time ago, whether we were going to trust him or not. Decide whether we're going to become followers of Jesus or continue living our own lives, right? Those of you who are not believers, just kind of looking into it, this is the issue. At least you get faced with uh, what it means to be a Christian. So if I can just boil it right down, those of us who are followers of the Lord know that we have messed it up. Um, We've tried to live our own ways, and it hasn't worked. We've come into church, and, and we say, God knows that about us, and he loves us anyway. And God wants to offer us hope. He said, Jesus says, I have, I love you so much that I'm willing to give my life for you. 
God the Father says, I love you so much, I'll send my one and only Son for you. And we've had to decide, will I give my sins to Him? Will I give my life to Him? We have, and He has been willing to take them. So, so that we are people who have known that, that, that we need mercy and we need help, and we have given ourselves to Him. Now, when we come to Him, we hear Jesus say to us, Listen, I didn't give my life to ruin yours. Remember what he said. Uh, I did not come to steal or kill or destroy your life. I've come that you may live, have, have life to the full. And this then is how I've made you to live. Do we trust him? When we come to the Ten Commandments every week, do you notice I start at the same place? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 4 and then 6. This is the God who rescued you out of slavery. Now, this is how I made you to live. And then he says, I'm going to teach you these things, not to ruin your life, but so that it may go well with you. And the question is, do you believe him? So that our society as a whole is saying, live this way, and it's better. God's word comes and says, no, 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 I've made you and I love you. Live my way and it will go well with you. Who will we believe? Now, when I talk about this, The first response that almost always comes up is, but wait a minute, that was written for so long ago. If it were written now, it would be written differently because they didn't have the same issues that we face today. Uh, Is that true? Uh, I want to make this point because there is this notion that the more progressive we become, the more we cast off the biblical teaching. Uh, the, The years I lived in Europe back in the 70s that's what I always heard when you when you'd be with the French when you'd be with the Germans they would always turn to me and say "Oh, you Americans you're so conservative and 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 tightly wound up when you become more progressive and enlightened like we are then you'll know that this doesn't really apply anymore and I found out even coming to Southern California coming from Chicago oh you Midwesterners You don't, you know, you don't see life the way it really, wait until you're here a while. I want you to know that the issue is not becoming more progressive. It has always been an issue of us having a longing to move one way and the world saying, yes, that's better. And God saying, no, no, no. If you really want to live, this is how you are to live. It is always that choice. And in Jesus' day, it was the same. The ancient Roman world could hardly believe that a message like no adultery could be good. In fact, if you read the second, third centuries, as the church grew so rapidly in the ancient world, there were two things about Christians that they could hardly believe. Do you know what they were? Number one, they were generous to the poor. And people who didn't have a whole lot not only found generosity, but a community that they became a part of. And that just was, you never saw that anywhere else. And and, and number two, that they were sexually faithful within their marriage relationships, which provided in the Roman world, in which that kind of faithfulness was never valued, it provided a whole different model of life, relationships and families that really lasted. And, And a part of what made Christianity grow so rapidly was the moral quality of the lives. There was just something different. And these were the things they saw. Now, not everybody thought that the Christian morality was good. And it really is interesting to read the arguments against it you find in the ancient world. Two things, basically. You know what they were? You can't live this way, no adultery, because number one, it's not healthy. And number two, it's impossible. 
Doesn't that just sound like 21st century Southern California? It's not healthy, the Hugh Hefner philosophy. And number two, it's not possible. Now, to all of this, to all of this, God's word says it is healthy. And number two, it is possible. And you and I are faced with a decision. That's why I say what is at stake this morning is the goodness and trustworthiness of God. Which brings me to the second point, the obvious one. All right, you say. Uh, if I'll, I'll come this far with you and, and I'll acknowledge that God is good. And what is it that he's asking for? What does the seventh commandment call for? Now, I know this part is going to be countercultural, as really this entire sermon is. But I, again, I want to tell you, it was countercultural in biblical days, too. Uh, in Jesus' day, there were two extremes with regard to sexual practice that people were embracing. Uh, I'll call them um, the prude and the pagan. Okay? You have two Ps there. The prude and the pagan. The prudes were the Platonists. Uh, Platonists believed that the body was evil and the immaterial part was good. Therefore, they said that, that a human being, if we're going to live an elevated life, will certainly not give in to something like sexual practice because the body is evil. We should always elevate ourselves. So what was created was they said you need to have relationships that are sexless. We, we still use that phrase, a platonic relationship. Haven't you heard that? It's the notion of a sexless relationship. That, that's, that's the prude notion. And you find it in every point in history. On the other side, you have what I call the pagans. They were the, the ancient mystery religions. Uh, I'm sure that nobody who goes to Lake Avenue Church ever read the Da Vinci Code. But uh, it was, that book is sort of built upon a very poor historical work on the, on the mystery religions. And the mystery religions essentially said, well, if you like to do it, you should do it. It's no big deal. Sex is no big deal. It's just a part of a human appetite. So that if you're hungry, you eat. And if you're sexy, you, you sex. <laughs> just so, you know, it's just one of the things that you do, like going to the theater or going bowling or, or whatever else. It's just something that you do. It's no big deal. Once again, it just shows you that the issue is not that you were becoming more progressive. It's always the same issue. That, that there is an inclination here or there, and God says, no, it, this way. I want you to see how the Bible so beautifully and wisely navigates through those two extremes. It absolutely rejects that prudish notion. If you don't believe me, read the Song of Solomon. It has created problems for conservative Christians for years. <laughs> read it through. It's really a celebration of, of sexual love within a marriage context. So, so the Bible rejects that prudish notion and says, this is a part of my gift to you. But I've made it, I've made it within a context of, large, of a larger relationship. One in which you commit yourself to one another. One in which you stay together. One in which you share something together that you share with no one else. On the other side, it, it rejects that pagan notion too. And it puts parameters around it and says, no, sexual activity is a beautiful gift created for this beautiful institution of marriage. Now, one of the key texts that you may want to read through is Leviticus 18. In that, Leviticus 18 sort of shows the areas that are, are being roped off around the marriage institution. It's quite a list. 
Uh, Jeremy, nobody's ever written a song about this that I know of, but you can read it through. But I'll just show you a few of the places. For example, in verse six, those very serious sexual sins of bestiality and incest are ruled out. Uh, In verse 20, we have the very technical definition of what we think of as adultery, in which we read, do not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Also in Leviticus 18, 22 and 23, we find the verses that are the most um, talked about in our day and the most controversial. It's the Bible's straightforward prohibition of same gender sexual activity because of its definition of marriage. A man leaves family, a woman leaves family, and the two become one. Some people are surprised that this isn't a new thing. As I mentioned, the issues that we wrestle with here have been always here. So we need, we need to, to acknowledge that. And, and my point is this too. The seventh command is concerned with more than just you shall not have love affairs with somebody who is already married. It is much more concerned about marriage itself. And it says to make marriage last. This is a gift that I've created for that marriage vow. And I, I can't be here without at least looking at those words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You know it well. Uh, those of you as old as I am, do you remember Jimmy Carter quoted these verses to his White House staff and told people to stop living in sin? Um, um, he was mocked and scorned for doing that. But it's these verses. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I want to tell you the fuller meaning of this. Anybody who looks at a woman... Key word here from Jesus, lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What we find Jesus doing here is what he always does. He says God is concerned not just about our outward acts. He is concerned about those, but about our inner beings. He's concerned about our our heart, our attitudes, our thoughts. He wants to make us whole. From the inside out. And a part of what he's concerned about here too. Is how we see other people. How we see other people. And the word lustfully. Really has to do with desiring. Something without wanting the best for that. Desiring something selfishly. What Jesus is saying. Is that when we look at another person. Lustfully. We are not saying. I see the image of God in you. We're not saying. I want the best for you. We're seeing that person just as an object. We really are dehumanizing. And in so much of what happens in our day, that is what is happening. Sex without respect. Sex without any intention of committing ourselves to that other person. I mean, many people misunderstand what Jesus is getting at here. They think that Jesus is ruling out any thoughts about sexual activity. Surely not. The Song of Solomon <laughs> argues against that. Uh, he, is, he is really saying that anticipation of the sexual act within the marriage commitment is a good thing. I, I, I would apply it this way. Those couples who are engaged who think positively and wonderfully and pleasurably about what will happen on the honeymoon... That that would be honoring to God. The word again is lust, which is that desire that is divorced from any kind of relationship in which we commit ourselves to one another. See, what God is saying is, I want you to be whole 
And I want the relationships we have with one another to be respect-filled and whole. Therefore, do not commit adultery. Which brings me to the third point. Why on earth do I think this command is good? Why is it so important? I've been getting at this a lot, but let me see if I can just drive it home. You look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. All the rest of the creation was there. You get to the sixth day, Adam, the man, was created. But he was made in the image of God. Now, Now, when you think about who God is, God is one being. But God has eternally existed in relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when God made us in his image, he made you and me for, for a relationship. And, and when Adam w- was brought into this world, there was nobody with whom to have a relationship. I, 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 you try to imagine it. Oh, look at these plants. They're beautiful. Something's missing. Oh, look at these animals. This buffalo. It's formidable, but something's missing. And God loving people, knowing that he had made people in his image to have lasting relationship does this beautiful thing of creating someone like Adam, made in the image of God, and he creates Eve. And then this beautiful, beautiful statement that all posterity rejoices about. God declared in Genesis 1:24, it is for this reason, uh, to combat loneliness, uh, to make it possible to have lasting relationships, To help human beings to be fulfilled. It is for this reason that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to the wife. And they become one flesh. Ah, It's it's something created for what is otherwise a very lonely world. And as I mentioned, sex is supposed to be a part of that committed relationship. Something that we share with nobody else. And therefore, in a world where so many things try to rip us apart, it becomes a part of the cement that holds us to one another. It's why I started with that marriage vow. It's what we promise to one another. And I promise to keep myself only to you as long as we both shall live. And we are going to have a relationship that lasts. Now, I'll tell you, in a world that in some ways scoffs that, there, there are those little um, uh, flickers of light in which people see that it's good. Most couples, when they stand there making those promises, they know it's good. I've rarely had a couple stand in front and make that promise, really thinking, I hope it doesn't happen. I don't want this relationship to last. And the other thing, and this morning I was almost shocked by this, the other thing is when we see one that's lasted, we know it's good. When we see a relationship where we have somebody who's been married 50 years, people look at that and say, Wow, what's a, a part of it? And a big part of that, I'm simply telling you, is when we make this commitment to one another and we fulfill it. I, I said I was shocked this morning because after the 9 o'clock service, I kept having, we've been married 68 years, we've been married 64 years, next week is going to be our... This is an amazing place so that if you want to have examples that it can happen even in Southern California, this community... This community has them. Um, Chris and I, let's see, this summer it will be 31 years. And uh, was it last year or two years ago, we were having uh, lunch at a Mexican restaurant, San Gabriel's in Chicago. And this young couple came, came up to us. They both worked there. And uh, they watched us and thought we were enjoying being together. And they said, how long have you been married? And we said, 30 years. 
Wow, they said, we've never seen that before in both of their extended families. They didn't have anybody, anybody who had stayed with one another. And so every time I would go back, and I went back often, they would sit down at night. They would ask me to stay around for a while. Never gave me free food, but (laughs) they would ask me to stay around for a while, and we would just talk about these things. It was once again what I I would say, our world, when they see it, just, just like in the Roman world, they said, we know that's good. We know that's good. And, and that's what I'm talking about today. Because sex was meant as a gift to this other institution, a gift that many of us have engaged in uh, of marriage. And, and when we exercise it outside, we both hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. Uh, one insightful text in this is Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4. I, this, again, is counterculture, but I want you to see what he has to say. He's talking to a church. And and really, the message that he gave them is the one I'm trying to give you. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul would write, It is God's will that you should be holy. And and the word simply means different from the rest of the world. I I want your life to be distinctive. And here's the way I want you to be different. You should avoid sexual immorality because the rest of the world isn't. You see what he's getting at. So that each one of you, my prayer is that you learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not like those who do not know God. And that in this manner, no one should, with immorality, wrong his brother or take advantage of him. But by immorality, wronging another person and taking advantage is a strange idea for the modern mind. Because we like to try to think of immorality as being my business, right? Just a private thing. It doesn't hurt anybody else. And the Bible says it does. There's another text in which Paul says it hurts you. And a part of what hurts us is that what was intended for a lasting relationship, we we start giving up a lot of that by spreading it around. But we also hurt that other person. We know that that's true within when we when 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 the sexual activity is with somebody who's already married. But what about uh, premarital? Well, even there, Paul says you are robbing, doing damage to someone's future, someone's future spouse. Dwight Small, who used to be in my church up the coast, wrote about this. It's so insightful. He said, two human beings who have shared the sex act can no longer act toward one another as if they had not. It changes the relationship. It's what Paul was getting at with a specific illustration in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, don't you know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute becomes one with her? In body, because the Bible says the two become one flesh. You see, this is what those Princeton students were getting at. Uh, when we have that, that sex act, it, we feel a connection, but the next day, when, when it's not a part of a lasting relationship, we feel so disconnected. And life seems to be so empty. Do you, do you see why it's so good and why it's so beautiful? Is that in this world, what makes it good is where we have lasting relationships with one another. And God has given us this gift to help bring that together. So God says, if you do it my way, I know it's hard for you to believe perhaps, but life will go well with you. All right, which brings me to my last question. If you come and you can look both in your inner being as well as in your activity and you see you've fallen short of the way that God created you to live, What should you do? 
And I frame the question this way. Where do we start in this journey toward living well? Now, I'll tell you, it's at this point that I really wrestled. Do you sense in my time with you these eight months that I so much simply want to teach you what God's word says? I want us to hear his voice. But I also really love you. I don't know all of you. Some of you are here for the first time. But I've been thinking about this. How do I talk to you about this? Because here at our church, we have people at such different stages in life. I've thought about the many, many, many people who come to our church who are single. And this hits in one way, doesn't it? I've I've thought about those who are wrestling in their marriages. It's in another. And those who have had failed marriages before. How does it? And and those who have faced addictions or, 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 or have felt drawn to a whole way of life that seems to be different from Scripture, it hits you in a different way. I've thought, what on earth in the moments that I have, what can I say to us all? So I've just written down a few statements and I would ask you to consider them carefully. And prayerfully. One. I want you, whatever stage you're in, I I want you to decide in your innermost being whether you truly believe that God is good and that you truly trust Him, that your life is His. I guess bottom line, I'm, I'm asking if you want to live as a Christian. I could just imagine preaching this message and some saying, I don't think I really believe it. Or I can imagine some saying, I hope the pastor is wrong this time. I can imagine others saying, I don't really care. Uh, I'm going to live the way I'm living. And so I want us to face the same question Jesus brought to a man in John 5. You know, there was a man his whole life had been lame. He was there lying beside a pool where supposedly if he could get into the pool when it was stirred, he would be healed and he could never get in in time. And when he comes and asks Jesus if he can help him, do you remember what Jesus asked him? A question that some people have thought is a silly question. Jesus asked, do you want to get well? What a silly question. Of course he wants to get Wait, but maybe not. Maybe he's developed a whole pattern of life around that problem and he doesn't really want to change and so I want us to really wrestle with that if you see these areas of your life that are not in keeping with God's word do you want to get well do you believe that if if you do it his way it will be better which brings me to the second statement I want to make I want each of us in the light of this message to identify those places where you fall short of God's expectation. And here I know it will be different for each one. But I want us all to own it with regard to our thoughts, our, our, our practices, our attitudes. Make, make note of that and simply say, I, Father, I know that I've not lived life as you created me to live it. And bring that to him. Third, when you want to bring it to him and want tomorrow to be different, and here almost every, every Sunday the same thing, but I, every Sunday it will be the same thing. I want us here at the Lake Avenue Church to claim to bask in the gospel that there is hope for you and me. There's a phrase I love, God's renewing grace. God's renewing grace. 
which means that tomorrow can be different than yesterday because God loves you and is ready to forgive you of sins and to give a spirit to you and to remake you. I want you to claim that good news. I want you to know that the blood of Christ is sufficient. And, and if you might say, if so many have said to me, but even if this pattern has gone on for so long, I say to you, yes, there's hope for you. And if you say, even if what I've engaged in is as serious as what I have done, I tell you on the authority of God's word, the grace of God available through the blood of Christ is greater than your sin. I just want you to claim that and bask in it. It's what brings us back to church every week. It is called the gospel. That God knows us and he loves us. Fourth. I just, you know this already, but I'll say it to you. Know that you're not the only one wrestling with this. We might pretend that we don't, but know that. In, in John chapter 8, uh, there's this woman who had developed a lifestyle of prostitution. And so she'd been caught. And you know, some of the religious leaders were going to stone her to death. And uh, remember what Jesus said? Uh, okay, the one who is without sin, let that one start this whole thing off. Let him cast the first stone. And then he's silent. You can almost hear one stone dropping after another. Sometimes I imagine, I'm just speculating, that some of those men have been involved with her. That's how they know. And I think sometimes the stone that's hardest to drop is the one that we hold ourselves and beat ourselves up with. Let, let me tell you, uh, you're not the only person who wrestles with this in this world. You know, with stimulus that we have in our day, it's, it's everywhere. It is rampant. That when I, your pastor stands in front of you, all of us are wrestling with how on earth can we become what God made us to be. I, I want you to know that. And I want you to know that there is victory. I mean, that today as, as people were walking out and talking about these things, it was so encouraging for me. I just want you to know that you're not alone. And what you have here at the Lake Avenue Church is a whole group of people who, who just acknowledged we need mercy. Oh, we've tried it, we've messed up, and we need mercy, and we've come to God and found it. Amen? No, I don't have nearly enough amens here. Just believe me, it is true. So if you come and you say, I need mercy and help, you've got a whole lot of other people who will uh, put their arms around you. Which is the fifth and last thing I want to say. I want us to begin to learn, and this is in the life of our community, to utilize all that God provides for growth. There's no one thing. Yes, there's the assurance of the gospel. There are times where we pray and find freedom and we will do that for one another. I think coming to church on Sunday morning is a big part of it. That's partly why I want you to be here. But, you know, we live our lives after we leave all the way through Saturday. We were bombarded with stuff and then we need to come in and hear things from God's perspective again. We need this. This is a part of your growth and to hear that there's hope for you again. And also, I think that the regular times of Bible study and devotion and prayer are important. We need to learn to fill our minds with something other than what we're usually bombarded with. And I, the battle usually isn't won alone. You need community. And if you've never found a small group of people that you can just trust, don't share all your sins with everybody in a public place. 
But if you can find just a few people that you trust, that when you're struggling, they can pray for you. And when they're struggling, you can pray for them. You'll find that other people's burdens are lighter than your own. Have you ever noticed that? And we'll try to help you if you'll drop us a note or, or, or give us a call to find a small group where maybe you can develop those relationships of trust. But that kind of mutual prayer can happen. But then also, and here we really want to help with this too, I know that some have gotten into such patterns uh, that it's hard to break them. And it may be some, some professional Christian counseling would be helpful. Well, we have counseling help here too, and I'm going to make it not so easy for you. Uh, you have to seek us out, but, but we will keep whatever you write to us about confidential. If you will contact our counseling center, Lambers Fisher heads it up, and his assistant uh, is Christiana uh, Weyerman. Uh, drop an email to that, or if you're not, uh, on, if you can't get on the email, you can write a note or give us a call, and we'll try to help and provide a referral or personally step in, because we want to stand with you, and we know that through the power of God and the community of His people, there is victory. L- let me tell you. You can't undo what happened in the past, right? Uh, If there are things in your past, one of the gifts God hasn't given to us is going back and undoing it. But one of the beauties of the Christian faith is this. God knows that. God knows that. And one of the things we can do as Christians is we don't have to wallow in the past. I I love this. God says, I know it. I've dealt with it. I've cast it as far as east is from the west. So when you leave this place, tomorrow can be different from yesterday. Let me end where I began. I think the battle that we face is the same one that we've always faced. Uh, Our own inclinations and so much of society is saying this is good. God is saying this is good. Uh, We have to decide if we trust him and if we're going to go his way. Uh, Every time I have talked about this, I get this this same pushback. But, uh, people will say, isn't this strange? Isn't this abnormal? Isn't this unnatural to live this way? It's so unHefner-like, this this sermon. And I always think this. Let's reframe that question. Um, how do we determine what is normal, particularly what is good? Uh, do we take a vote, and if the majority of people think this is good, then that's good, and, and the others have to be all wrong? H.G. Wells wrote an unforgettable short story about this. It's called The Country of the Blind. It, t- it tells the story of a man named Nunez who somehow became a part of an isolated tribe where everybody in the tribe was congenitally blind. No one had ever been able to see. Of course, Nunez, when he comes in, has vision. Now, in that sort of a setting, who is normal? Nunez or the others? Well, you know what happened. Nunez was viewed as the abnormal one. They viewed him as being a danger to their society. He was diagnosed as being mentally ill. But they wanted to try to help him, so they brought a doctor in, and that doctor diagnosed him. And he said, I found out the problem. It's these soft enclosures at the top of his head. And one of the professors of medical research said, I know how to deal with that. I know how to remove those things. Thank God for science, said another one. And they all say, let's go tell Nunez. He'll be so happy. Ah. I think it is great satire because it shows to us how foolish it is to try to establish what is good on the basis of what the whole society is saying. Now, we claim to be Christian. 
How do we determine what is good? The maker of heaven and earth, the maker of our lives, the lover of our souls, said, I I love you, I've rescued you, I want the best for you. Now, this is how you should live. Now, in many churches, and Albert told me mostly in the black church, I don't know. When you come to a point like this in the sermon, what the preacher does is, he says, God is good. And the people answer, all the time. And then the preacher says, all the time. God is good. Now, do you think we can engage in that? Am I going to stretch this a little bit? Let us see. God is good. All the time. God is good. All the time. God is good. All the time. And I declare to you that that is true also when he says, You shall not commit adultery. To his glory. Amen. Let's have a moment of prayer together. I think this would be a good time for us individually to pull back some of those things I ask you to think about in my second statement. Areas that we know that fall short of the way God's made us to be. Now I want you to confess those to him. Even if they've been long time patterns of thinking, of treating people, of acting. I want you to take them and give them to him. Confess them. And ask for his forgiveness. In the the light of that confession, I want us to hear again a statement of good news. Found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old, what was is gone because the new has come. All this is from God. God was reconciling people to himself in Christ. Not Counting their sins against them. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible. And I want you to hear it. That when you bring your sins to him, he declares, I will not count your sins against you. Hallelujah.